well, our Christmas break uh, from Isaiah um, left us halfway through the chapter. We completed the vision of Isaiah and we got to verse 8 and we saw the commissioning that Isaiah, having seen the uh, the Lord sitting on his throne, having seen the seraphim, the angelic beings, and this uh, declaration of God's holiness, his awareness of his own sin, his restoration and redemption from his sin, um, we then have his commissioning. And really where we want to pick up now, where we... Uh, we left it with a bit of a, a bridge between the two sections because they do link together. And this week we're picking up with the commissioning itself uh, what the Lord says to Isaiah in verse 9. So we're looking at verses 9 and 10 and we'll be in the remainder of this chapter for at least a couple more weeks um, because it not only is a lot deeper than it seems at first glance, but also it is pretty foundational to how the rest of the book proceeds. So it's important that we understand it. So we're going to um, pick up in chapter 6 and verse 9. I'm going to read now from verse 8, and then we'll pray, and then we'll study. So, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, <coughs> and Yahweh removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. <coughs> Let's pray. Father, we pray um, for our study tonight. We pray that as we come now to this text, Lord, that you would enable me and guide me as I teach, that I might teach your word and only your word, that your truth might be proclaimed, and that we might be transformed by it. Lord, may we come to understand your word better and as we understand it better, may we understand you better. May we see your word and may we see you. <coughs> and as we look at the blindness that you imposed upon your people, Lord, we rejoice that you've opened our eyes and that we can see. Lord, may we see your word tonight. Amen. Okay, so here we are. 
this famous commissioning, one of the uh, saddest things for me is that our familiarity with Isaiah 6 is so often, because it is a familiar passage, um, as we talked about several times over the Christmas period with our familiarity with Christmas passages of Scripture, that sometimes our familiarity leads to blindness in and of itself, that we're, we're so familiar with the text that we kind of skim over it and we don't see really what's going on. And it's interesting to me that we have so much focus on the first half of this chapter that we really neglect the second half. And though the first half of the chapter, and we haven't spent a lot of time following the implications of it, because I did an entire series of that last year, and you can refer back to that, but though the first half of this chapter is so foundational to the rest of Scripture, the vision of Isaiah in chapter 6 is the same scene, the same vision that Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel 1 and elsewhere in the book of Ezekiel. It's the same vision that Daniel sees um, in Daniel uh, chapter 7, and it is the same vision, um, I argued, uh, that Paul sees on the Damascus Road. And finally, it's the same scene that John sees in the book of Revelation. And this vision of a future event, this vision of the inauguration of Christ the Messiah ruling and reigning in the temple on earth. And this is the vision that is seen. And, and, it, and like I said, it's so foundational. There it is in Isaiah 6, and then Ezekiel, Daniel, you know, Paul, and, and John, and, and in Revelation, on it goes. And it's something that, that permeates through the rest of Scripture. But you see, you know what? The second half of chapter 6 is actually alluded to more times in this rest of Scripture than the first half of chapter 6. The, the, the concept of this blindness, this deafness, is something that is picked up in, in, in the gospel accounts, in the ministry of Jesus. It's something that's picked up elsewhere in Isaiah, a little bit later on, as we'll see. It's picked up by Jeremiah, by Ezekiel, by the minor prophets, and it, it becomes one of the central themes of Scripture. And it is something that is hugely problematic at first glance, as we'll see in a moment. And it's something that is resolved most definitively by Paul in the book of Romans. And I would argue, not wanting to get distracted too much by the book of Romans, I would argue that um, the Romans chapters 9 through 11, where Paul deals in detail with Israel, with the blindness of Israel, with the future of Israel, to many commentators in history, Romans 9 to 11 has almost been put into parentheses. It's like, look at Romans 1 to 8. Oh yeah, here's 9 and 11. 9, 10 and 11. Oh, and then look at Romans 12 and following. You know, it's, it, it gets a short shrift uh, traditionally in so many commentaries, I would argue the opposite. I think Romans 9, 10, 11 is the central point and the central focus of the entire book. So this whole theme is incredibly important. But let's start with the obvious problem, shall we? Let's have a look and see what happens. Here's Isaiah, cleansed, atoned for by the burning coal. He is representative of Israel. He stands in his sin. He stands before the holiness of God. And God, in his holiness, cannot coexist with this sin. And so God brings his burning and his fire. But rather than bringing destruction, he brings redeeming holiness. 
Something that was hinted back as far as Isaiah 1 and that has led through to this. And so Isaiah, who has now had his sin atoned for, when he hears the Lord say, right, who shall I send? Isaiah, now redeemed and restored, is saying, me, send me. This is the natural response of one who is saved by grace, saved by, the, by God. And he wants to be sent. And so, whom shall I send? Who should go for us? We dealt with that last time that we were in Isaiah. He says, here I am, send me. And God then says, go. And that's really where we're picking up tonight. Go. Isaiah has volunteered himself. We spoke about that in the, our bridge. He's volunteered himself and there's all the implications there. And God says, okay, I'm going to accept your offer. I want you to go and this is your job. Now, at this point, as we come and we look at the problem, I want us to understand a concept here. I want us to understand what is happening here. We had, I had a good chat this morning um, with Michael about this. You know, we are saved by the sovereign grace of God. He chooses us before the foundation of the world, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1. And as that passage of Ephesians, so foundational to, to the whole of our faith, goes through, he, he concludes that whole section in chapter 2 with the glorious statement that we're saved by, by faith and uh, not by works so that none of us should boast. But he then goes on to say that we're saved for works that were prepared for us beforehand. Wait, 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 back when he chose us. There were these works that we were saved for, that we were chosen for, that we might walk in them. That God has a purpose and a plan for our life, and he always has done. And so we, we like Isaiah, we, we are ignorant of God and his plans. We don't see um, God and who he is. And then there's this moment when, through the awareness of our own sin and our implied repentance of and our awareness of our distance from God and our sinfulness, that we, that we, um, we turn to him. That's the, that's the core meaning of repentance, that we turn to God. We see our insignificance. We see our uselessness in and of ourselves. And we turn to God. And God saves us by his righteousness and he saves us and so we 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 become his we become his disciples and we say here i am let's go and at that point there's this complete mystery it, it's a mystery to us but not to god god before the foundation of the world when he chose us and he knew us and he said i'm going to save that one because i have a mission for them i have a ministry for them and then we as new covenant believers, as you know, that God saves us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit empowers us. We are all empowered by the same Holy Spirit. But we're all empowered by that same Spirit with different gifts for different ministries. We all have different experiences in our lives that prepare us for different ministries. So when God says to us that wonderful word, go, where does he send us? That's the mystery. We don't know. And here's my main point at this stage. We have no say in it whatsoever. God says, go. And our job at that point is to go. We don't get to sit down and say, you know what? Lord, I've been thinking. I've done this little test I found online, and I, I think that the most suitable ministry for me is this one. Or, Lord, I'm not really fond of, of this type of ministry. I think I'm better suited to that one. Now, I'm not 
negating the fact that there are things that we're more suited to and that God supernaturally, providentially tends to bring us to those ministries. But what I am emphasizing is, is that we don't get any say in what our ministry is. And this morning I was uh, speaking with Michael about that wonderful passage in Jeremiah, I believe it's chapter 22, where Jeremiah has been preaching against the false prophets of the day and against those who are, who are speaking of good things when, when the, the message of the Lord is, is quite the opposite. And to shut Jeremiah up, the leader of that, uh, that uh, governmental uh, system, that area, he... Uh, locks Jeremiah in the stocks overnight. <laughs> he says, that'll shut him up. And he lets him out the following morning, and Jeremiah not only preaches ever more boldly, but he specifically preaches against that man, against his family, and preaches judgment on them. And you, you, you look at that passage alone, and you see this boldness of this mighty great prophet. But the most wonderful thing about the book of Jeremiah is that Jeremiah takes us, in a way that Isaiah doesn't really, behind the scenes. And we get this interaction between Jeremiah and God. It's like Jeremiah's on the stage saying, you know, I'm pre the Lord says this and judgment upon you and he's bold and he's brave. And then he walks off the stage and he's aside there with God and he, paraphrasing very loosely here, but he says, you tricked me, God. You conned me. If I had any idea what this calling would be practically, oh my word, it's like, I had no idea that you would put me through this. And that bold, brave man preaching as he's let out from the stocks shows his vulnerability. And then he says this thing, he says, but it burns within me and I cannot stay silent. And... What we get from that passage is we get the, the, uh, the very reoccurring theme in Scripture of the reluctant prophet. And I don't believe as any one of us who in our ministries, whatever they are, does not relate to that. The idea, like Moses, oh, I can't do that, I can't speak, I'm, I'm, I, how can I take that job? There's always this resistance, this, this recognition of our inability, and God says, go anyway, and we go, and we, we, we struggle, we, we fight. And all of this is really based around that single word, go. God, in his sovereignty, says, go. It's not a group decision. There's no voting. It's not a democratic process. God says, you guys, go. I had no idea as a young Christian when I got saved that I would one day be preaching in Burbank, California. I had no idea the trials and the fires I would have to go through to be here. And you likewise had probably no idea that you would go through what you've been through to be where you are sitting here tonight. But God did, and he knew, and he saw the trials, and he saw the fire, and he still said, go. And we don't get points. We don't get applauded for deciding in our infinite wisdom what it is that we should be doing. The only issue is, are we faithful to the command to go? 
Now, here's one little bit of encouragement. No matter how tough your ministry is, no matter how reluctant you are, no matter how difficult the charge is, no matter how unpleasant or displeasing your ministry is to you, you do not compare to Isaiah even remotely. Let's look at his ministry. Let's look at the commission that he has given. Go and say to this people, this people, we know who this people are. We're not going to allegorize it or spiritualize it away. We've been told from the beginning of the book, it is a ministry to Judah and Jerusalem, to the southern kingdom of that time. And he has a ministry to them, and it's to this people he is to say this. And, and I want you to note this. This is a command. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes heavy, and blind their eyes, sorry, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now, let's look at this as a whole. Verse 9 and verse 10 are different. Verse 9 is what he says to the people. He, God says, remember, go and say this to them. What he says to them is verse 9. Verse 10 is God's explanation to Isaiah of what he's going to say. So the message itself is in verse 9. So this is his message, yeah? Now, you want to go and preach to a group of people. God says, go preach to them. What, do you, what would you like to say to them? Turn and be healed. Turn from your sin, repent, believe in the gospel. The message that we have as Christians is a message of hope. It's a message that is, you are in your sin, that there is, there is condemnation, there is the judgment of God, but turn from your sin, turn to God, be healed, be restored, be saved, have faith in him. This is why we call it the gospel. Gospel means good news. Isaiah has got nothing but bad news. This is his message to them. I want you to keep hearing people, listen to what I'm saying, but I don't want you to understand it. I want you to see, but I don't want you to perceive. That's the message. Just those two statements. And, and like, like it's so common in Hebrew, we have these parallels that are essentially saying the same thing. I'm going to say something to you, but you're not going to get it. Trust me, I've been preaching for about two decades, and that is a preacher's worst nightmare. I'm going to commit my life to teaching and preaching the Word of God, and you will not understand it. Now, I understand in my ministry that there's times when that happens with many people, and it's very hard to brush it off and not be emotionally affected or impacted by it. And God in his grace always provides enough people who do get it to keep my heart alive and to let me get up the next week and try and do it all over again. But Isaiah is specifically told, here's your ministry, Isaiah. Blindness and deafness. A complete lack of understanding. Not only is that your mission, that's your goal. Your statement to the people is, I'm going to say something, but you won't understand it. And lest we think that there's some misunderstanding here, God explains it in verse 10. He's saying to Isaiah, I want you to make the heart of this people dull. I want you to make their ears heavy. I want you to blind their eyes. Listen, everything we do in preaching, every illustration, every story, explanation, every way that we communicate, the whole intention is for you to understand the text. 
Isaiah is being told to do the exact opposite. I want you to make them not hear. I want you to make them not see. It's as if God's saying, hey, Isaiah, be careful that you don't explain it too well. They might actually understand it. And we really don't want that. Why don't you want it, Lord? Well, here's the answer. Because if they do understand, they might see, they might hear, and they might understand, and that might lead to them turning, repenting, that's what the word turning is about, repenting, and being healed and being saved. I want you to understand how offensive, how radical, and how difficult this is. This is the equivalent today of saying, don't preach the gospel or that person might be saved. That's what's being said here. Because though the gospel that we have may not be the message of that day, these people were still people who had to be saved by trusting in God, had to place their faith in God and be saved by faith, and there was good news for them. And Isaiah is literally being told, we don't want these people to hear the good news and be saved. If that is not problematic to you, you've missed the point of the text. It's supposed to be problematic to you. Just so you understand how problematic it is, I have at home an entire book that is dedicated to how difficult this was for people of that era. <coughs> I've mentioned to you many times, I've referenced um, a collection of translations that are collectively referred to as the Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And in the Greek translation of this passage, this was translated away into the concept of, well, you know, you're going to preach and, and, and what have you. We want them to understand, but they probably won't. It, it, it's in, in the same way that people today are offended by the sovereignty of God and try and say, well, God foreknows which of you will choose to believe. In that similar way, the translators of that day, the people who would take this passage to at that time were struggling to understand it and were doing a similar thing where they're saying well they won't hear and they won't understand and that's a terrible thing that was how it was translated in the Septuagint we have um, Dead Sea Scrolls that would say a similar thing the, the problem was is that people saw this passage and basically said that must be wrong that's how offensive it was this, folks, is a command to the people. You must not hear and you must not believe. So for us to understand this, and we're going to be talking about this for the next two or three weeks, it's so foundational. We're going to see how it's used in the New Testament. We're going to see the implications here. But, but for us to even start this journey, we have to get the severity of this foundation that this is a problem passage that it is offensive that it is just in every sense seemingly wrong to us it's wrong to us it is um, as one writer said it is strong theological medicine some might even say it is divine poison <laughs> it, it basically um is a struggle. Even today, there are academic commentators, those maybe who don't hold to the inspiration of the Bible quite that we do, uh, who, who will go out of their way and say, well, Isaiah didn't have this vision. This, this never happened. 
that Isaiah preached and he had this ministry and his ministry was this abject failure and he was psychologically struggling with this and was depressed about it and so retrospectively he went back and God's kind of saying don't worry Isaiah that's how it was always going to be even today people can't handle it and to be frank <laughs> I'm not really surprised it's very offensive to us I want us to understand that the sovereignty of God to cause blindness upon someone is something that we are all going to and should struggle with. And I think, and I'll be frank here, that some within the community of what we might call Calvinists are so embracing of this that their embracing makes me deeply uncomfortable. We are supposed to struggle with this. This is supposed to be offensive. This is not comfortable, nor should it be. God is saying, don't see, don't hear, don't understand, because I don't want you to repent. Now, you have to see contextually where this is found. This comes immediately following the the, the vision of a temple. In fact, we're still in that place. It is there in the presence of God that Isaiah is told, go. This is part of the same scene. And what have we seen in this scene? We have seen, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We see in this passage the holiness of God. We see through the burning coal the righteousness of God. We see the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the majesty of God. And that God, that holy God, that righteous God, says you won't see and you won't hear. How do we reconcile this? That's a good question, isn't it? Let's start. Let's try and work our way through it. There's a background here. I've said to you from the beginning of Isaiah, the first five chapters are unusual. They're unusual because a prophet's ministry starts with his calling. And chronologically, Isaiah's life, his ministry, begins in chapter 6. And yet we have five chapters of his ministry, which was chronologically after the calling, that have been in this book put before the calling. Why? Because they are a theological foundation for us to understand the calling. There's no accidents here. So when we look at the end of chapter 1, we see... Um, I'll tell you what, the, the further on we go, the more the end of chapter 1 is just totally foundational to the entirety of Isaiah, and by implication, the entirety of the, the New Testament as well. <clears throat> that we have in the end of chapter 1, verse 27, this wonderful statement. You should turn and look because it's important. Chapter 1, verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness that rebels and sinners shall be broken together, those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Then, see, God is going to redeem by justice. There's going to be justice, and that justice for some is going to mean condemnation and judgment. For others, that justice is going to be their redemption, that God will be seen to be just in all. And this is really the beginning of this theme opening up in Isaiah. And then it says in verse 29, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks. They shall be ashamed of the oaks. And this is crucial, 
We talked about this at the time. If you weren't here for Isaiah 1, here's your brief Cliff Notes potted version. But the oaks here are not just trees randomly. These are the trees that were used to make idols. When we see a reference to oaks, we're looking at idolatry. Okay? They're going to be ashamed of the oaks. They're going to be ashamed of their idols. They're ashamed of the idols that you desired. You shall blush for the gardens you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak who withers. Now this is the beginning of our foundation. This is something that he begins in chapter 1 that we're going to see come through and take us to chapter 6. So what I'm going to do for this next section is I'm walking us through these early chapters so we can understand what's going on in chapter 6. Okay? There is going to be God's justice. Israel's sin is going to be dealt with. God is going to be found to be just in dealing with their sin. And for many of them, that justice is going to be their destruction. But for some of them, God will redeem them. His holiness will be shown in him redeeming them. The picture is one of, of a burning up. And, and, and there is destruction in burning, but there is purifying in burning as well. Much will be destroyed, but what remains will be pure. We know see that many places in Scripture. And in particular, there is the issue of idolatry that is being dealt with. Now, they desired, verse 29, these oaks from which they made idols. They desired them and they had chosen them. And because they chose the oaks, because they chose the idols, it says, you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. The strong shall become tinder, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. You see there's that picture of burning. That there is that theme that we've seen throughout these early chapters, that those who are proud and lift themselves up are brought low, and those who humble themselves are lifted up. That God is the one who is high and lifted up, Isaiah 6. And those who lift themselves up will be put in their place by the Lord of hosts. And they will be burnt like wood. They will be burnt up. But the key thing I want you to see here is I want you to see, and we talked about this at the time, that because they chose the oaks, their idols, they become like their oaks. Now, there's a theme here. We're going to see it develop in the next couple of weeks. There's a theme here. That, um, there's a great book written on this by uh, a guy called uh, G.K. Beale, which is, the, the theme is this, that you become what you worship. If you worship Yahweh, you become like Yahweh. You become redeemed. You become holy. Isaiah is a picture of that. There he is in the presence of God, and he's like, I'm undone. Woe is me. I, I can't be here because I'm not like this. This is not the place for me to be. And because of the redeeming work of God, the atoning for his sin, he's able to say, here I am, send me. That he is transformed and can go from someone under the condemnation of God to someone who represents God. There is a transforming work where Isaiah becomes transformed from sinfulness to sinlessness. Not that he was sinless as he ministered, but there is this transforming, redeeming work that is seen in Isaiah's life. But equally, those who choose to worship idols become like idols. That's important. That's so crucial. So crucial that we get that. So then as we go into chapter 2 and verse 8, 
we're told specifically, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the works of their hands to what their own fingers have made. A clear statement that this is, this is as we saw as we went through it, this is a central theme of the condemnation and the earth, it's probably the central theme in the condemnation in these early chapters of Isaiah. Why is it all here? Because we need to understand before we get to chapter 6, we need to understand so that we can understand the commissioning of Isaiah, the vision of Isaiah, that idolatry is the problem in the land. They're making these things with their own hands, they're worshipping these things. So man is humbled and each one brought low. We see that same theme again. Skip ahead in chapter 2 to verse 18. In fact, let's start in verse 17 because we see that, that humility and pride theme again. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord, Yahweh alone, will be exalted in that day. You lift yourself up, he brings you down. Because God is the one who's high and lifted up. And then uh, look again at this, uh, verse 18. When God brings them down, when he brings them low, the idols shall utterly pass away. And the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground before the terror of Yahweh, the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. To the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the cave, the clefts of the cliffs, before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. Idols are central. Even a little bit further back in chapter 2, we have in verses 13, uh, 12 and 13, again, pride being brought down, cedars of Lebanon, Oaks of Bashan. This is again reference to the things that were used to make idols. Idolatry is the key issue. So, with that in mind, let's keep going through and let's come to the bit that immediately preceded Isaiah 6. Isaiah 5 and the Song of the Vineyard. Remember the Song of the Vineyard? What happened in the Song of the Vineyard? God tells this story. He's a telling a parable as it were the idea of this parable like others in scripture is that you the guilty party hear the parable and you go oh that sounds fair to me and then you realize that you're the one being judged and God says that here we are we have this vineyard the vineyard's on a fertile hill it's got protection it's got everything it needs there is no reason for this vineyard to be anything other than fruitful successful fertile and wonderful there's a wine press ready to to press the grapes and what happened the vineyard produced rotten stinky sour useless grapes the fruit was bad and God, whose vineyard it was, who made this vineyard, the context is clear. It was not his fault at all. Everything that they needed to produce good fruit was given to them, but they did not produce the good fruit. Verse 5 of chapter 5. Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge, it will be devoured. I will break down its wall, it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and the briars and thorns shall grow up, and I will command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. God says, because you produce no fruit with fertile ground, you won't have fertile ground. 
Because you produce no fruit with protective walls, you won't have protective walls. If you're not going to produce fruit when I give you all you need, I won't give you what you need. And then you just still won't produce. And because he's God and he's sovereign, you won't even get rain. You had an opportunity to produce fruit and you did not take it. Therefore, you will have taken away from you the opportunity to produce fruit. And then, of course, in verse 7, there is the big reveal. By the way, Israel, I'm talking about you. You're the ones who didn't produce good fruit. And so there is this judgment that is cast upon Israel. This judgment is you were supposed to produce good fruit. Everything was given to you to produce good fruit, but you didn't. And now the opportunity is going to be taken away from you. Let's put this evidence together. Let's look at our foundation and let's take it to chapter six with us. Okay. Israel was chosen from amongst the nations as God's chosen nation. God covenanted with them, as we spoke about this morning in Hebrews. He, there was this blood covenant that was God's dealings with Israel, and they, above all nations, were chosen for God to deal with them. They were given the covenants, the promises, the patriarchs. Everything was theirs. Every provision was made, and they should have produced good fruit. And what did they do? They lifted themselves up above the Lord, and they chose to worship idols. They didn't trust in God, and they trusted in the gods of that land. They trusted in idols rather than in Yahweh. And in doing so, they showed their pride. And that idol worship was the bad fruit. That idol worship was the judgment. And so God says, fine. I'm going to take away from you the opportunity to produce good fruit. That's what he said he'd do in Isaiah 5. That's the explanation for what's happening in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is the judgment of Isaiah 5. Isaiah 6 is Isaiah being told, your ministry is to bring the judgment of Isaiah 5. That's why we got to see the song of the vineyard in advance. So that when Isaiah 6 comes with all its awkwardness and prickliness and how can this be God? That we understand that this is what they have brought upon themselves because of their idolatry. And the picture here, which I want us to be really clear about, the picture here is this. That they won't be able to see because they worship idols that can't see. They won't be able to hear because they worship idols that can't hear. This is something that Isaiah is going to pick up on later. I, I want you to um, just turn with me to Isaiah 42. We're years away from that, so we, don't, we won't have too many spoilers. You'll have forgotten by the time we get back there. Isaiah 42. I want you to look at some of these verses with me. Isaiah 42, verse 17. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. There's that idolatry, yeah? They make them and they worship them as gods. And what does he say in verse 18? Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or as deaf as my messenger who I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as a servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. You see, deafness and blindness associated with idolatry. Turn to chapter 43 
and verse 8. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes. Those who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declare the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no saviour. Oh, I cannot wait to teach this passage. I want you to see how that well-known verse, I am the Lord, no one beside me is a saviour, is contextually linked to this people who are blind and who are deaf and who can't see. The nations have gathered together and he says to them, he says, let them bring witnesses to prove their right. Who are the witnesses? The witnesses of the blind are their gods, their idols. Jen and I have been talking about this a lot of late. There is this, there is this tension in idolatry of there being these lifeless, blind, deaf idols made of stone, made of wood, made of, of metal. And yet behind those idols, there are real demonic entities, the witnesses, so to speak. And yet they can't see and they can't hear. They're not like Yahweh. They're not like him. But again, we see this blindness linked with idolatry. I'd love to spend more time in that, but it's going to have to wait for another day. But go one more chapter with me to verse, uh, chapter 44. Chapter 44. Um, there's a lot in this chapter on this um, Again, we have a similar statement, verse 8, Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witness, there's that word again, their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. And the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. Let them be terrified and let them be put to shame together. Man, there's so much there, isn't there? Look, those who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Look, you make an idol and you worship an idol. And what do you benefit from it? Nothing. It's a path to destruction. Why would you do that? That's just stupid. That's the blindness of those who are idols. And so the picture that's being painted in all of these scriptures is, is he's developing this, this is Isaiah 6 being developed further later on in Isaiah. The picture in all of this is that if you worship an idol, that is stupid. <laughs> but you can't see that it's stupid. You're as blind as the idol that you make. You're as deaf as the idol that you make because you can't see the futility of what you're doing. You're lifting yourself above God. That's the connection with pride. You're lifting yourself above God, saying, I know a better way. And God is going to bring you down, and he's going to bring shame to all of the idol worshippers. And this whole section of verse um, 44 really deals with this in a lot of detail, and I don't want to get too distracted. But just look again at verse 18. Um, well, let's start from verse 17. 
The rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. He falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat I have eaten, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? The whole picture is this. They make idols out of wood. They worship wood. That's going to be burnt up into nothing but ashes. It's the very picture of stupidity and futility. But they cannot see because they are blind as the idols they worship. I want to show you one more passage on this. And then we'll come to our conclusions and we'll move on. Maybe two more. Let's see. Uh, Psalms. Go, go uh, back a little bit to the Psalms. Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. And they have noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You make an idol, you become like an idol. You worship an idol, you become like an idol. Idols don't see, they don't hear, they're dumb, they're stupid, there's nothing to them, they're lifeless, and that is exactly what you become when you worship. Nobody in the history of the world will say, you know what, I'm going to worship an idol because um, I want to destroy myself. I'm going to worship something that can't see, can't hear. I'm going to worship a lifeless piece of wood. No one says that, do they? To worship an idol, you've got to think that there's some value to that idol. You have to. And the irony of that is not recognizing the worthlessness of the idol in the very act of choosing to worship it, in the very act of thinking there's some value to you in worshiping it, you become like the idol. That's the whole point. There's, there's, a, a, there's, there's, there's a common um, principle here that is even recognized by modern psychology. And I love this, by the way. Uh, not modern psychology, but this particular thing. There, there were a couple of guys back in the 60s called uh, Dunning and Kruger. Have you ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? It's one of the most fascinating studies that has been done in modern times. Dunning and Kruger got together, a couple of psychologists, and they did this study. And they found that the more stupid you were, the cleverer you thought you were. It's really simple. They did tests on people, and they did tests on things like maths and geography, and even a sense of humor. 
and they found that the people who scored the lowest, when they were asked, how did you think you did, thought that they scored the highest. It's kind of logical if you think about it. If you have no idea what correct grammar is, then if you look at something that's grammatically incorrect, you've got no idea if it's good or bad, because you've got no basis to make that judgment. So in other words, the more stupid you are, the more clever that you think you are. That's the Dunning-Kruger effect. I used to work for a few people that were exactly like that, that they, had, they, they thought they were wonderful, had no idea of how bad they were, because they were so bad they couldn't recognise how bad they were. And that's the principle here. That, that if you worship idols, it makes perfect sense to you. You wouldn't do it if it didn't make sense. And yet, in the very act of worshipping them, you reveal how stupid you are. In your pride, you reveal your blindness and your deafness. I want to put this legs on this as we finish tonight. I want to make a conclusion that we can relate to. We sung tonight in, uh, in our worship songs at the start about the beauty of God. I was captivated by that line as we sung it tonight. The beauty of God. It's a, it's a term we don't associate with God so much, you know. We look at the, a, a landscape, we look over the ocean, over the mountains, and we say, oh man, that's just so beautiful. And, and sometimes we don't recognise that the beauty is a reflection of the God who created it. And, and that is a very small insight into how idolatry works, how we see the goodness of God and we step from worshipping his beauty to worshipping the beauty that he's created. We go from worshipping the creator to worshipping creation. This morning we sung, while we're sticking to the theme of worship and what we sung today, being impacted by the worship this, this weekend, about... We sung uh, this morning about all I have is Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. It's very hard to live that out, isn't it? Let's be frank. It's really hard to find your satisfaction in God alone. If you're lonely, you think that another human being will satisfy your loneliness. If there's some void in your life, you think that this... this pursuit, this, this passion, this, this person is going to somehow fill that void in your life. And, and the Lord says, I alone will satisfy you. No Christian, to take an obvious example, no Christian who commits adultery says, you know what, I think I'm going to put aside the Lord, I'm going to put aside his holiness and his will, I'm going to uh, put aside faithfulness and holiness, and I'm going to pursue something that will bring utter destruction to me and bring judgment upon me, um, because I, I just want to destroy my life. What they do is they see that idol as being something that will improve their life, fill that void, make their life better. When the Israelites worshipped Baal, but Baal was a god who gave them the harvest, right? So they, they, they had a, a bad harvest one year, and so they prayed to Yahweh, hey Yahweh, give us, give us a better harvest next year. And the next year comes along and they, they get a worse harvest. If, if they get another year of a bad harvest, they're going to die. 
Yahweh's not helping us with our harvests, is he, really? These guys, they, they pray to Baal for their harvests. Maybe we should do that. It seems so obvious when we see it in those terms, because that's not our world and our life. But how, how easy it is for us in our lives to live by the same principles. The test for us is always the same. Are you going to trust God? And are you going to be faithful to him? Or are you going to look apart from God to satisfy your soul and to meet your needs? The Israelites had Yahweh. Throughout the wilderness, he provided them with water, he provided them with food, he provided them with their needs. And again and again and again, though they were taught these lessons, they did not learn to trust God. And so it was in inevitable that as we come to Exodus 32 and following that they would turn to idol worship. They would worship other than God. That they would worship images they've been commanded not to worship. Why? Because they never learned to trust in God. If we don't learn to trust God, we will trust in something else. We are worshippers. If we don't worship God, we will worship something else. And what we worship, we will become. Either for restoration or for ruin. And if we look apart from God for our satisfaction, that blindness will make us more blind. And so we'll end where we began. Isaiah 6. Preach so that they would be judged. Preach so they won't repent. Preach so they won't see or they won't hear. How do we justify such a message? Because the people had already made their decision. They had decided that Yahweh was inadequate and they had chosen idolatry and they had become like their idols and their blindness the deafness, the inability to see and to hear was the judgment that they had chosen for themselves by their rejection of God. Now, we don't live in the time of Israel. We don't live in Isaiah's day. We're Christians, I hope, and we're saved by grace. We're saved by faith and what have you. But the principle, my friends, is still true. Our life is a constant lesson that with all that is thrown at us, with every temptation, with every pain, with all anguish, with every trial, do you trust God or will you look elsewhere? Will you be faithful or will you be blind and think that there is a solution somewhere else and that there is a way that is better? Because if you do, you are lifting yourself up above God my way is right. My way is the way that we will do it. And God will crush you and shame you. Our life is this simple journey where all that we do, there are just these two questions. Do you trust God? And will, will you be faithful to him? I pray that we will. 
And I pray that we won't be blind and deaf and turn to other things to fill the void that only God can truly fill. May we find our satisfaction in him and in him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you for the, the frankness of your word, Lord. And <clears throat> I thank you tonight, Lord, for the fear of your word. Lord, though I know that I'm saved by grace and that <clears throat> your redemption in me will one day be complete, Lord, I know how vulnerable I am to look outside of you for satisfaction to look at the things that you give, to look at the things that you've created and to trust in them rather than to trust in you. May I not be blind. May I not be deaf. May I not be stupid. May I not be proud. But may I trust in you. And may I be faithful. Whatever ministry or calling you have given to each one of us no matter how unpalatable it might be to us may we be found to be faithful to the calling that you've called us to may we walk in a manner that is worthy of that calling may we bring glory to your name amen amen